Welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. This is the first lesson of the Jacob study. If you guys do not know the story of Jacob, it is full of drama. And so I hope that you really enjoy it. We're going to start out today with the birth of his sons in Genesis 25. And they hit it right off with contention. And so we're going to talk about what happens whenever God doesn't seem to be doing anything about the things that we're praying about. We're going to talk about jealousy and favoritism, and we're also going to talk about coveting. Just a little warning, there is a ton of scripture here today, because especially for the part where it doesn't seem like anything is happening when we're praying, I want you to have biblical references so that when you feel that way, as I have in my life before, you'll have some scriptures to look back to that'll hopefully be comforting and reassuring. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. So last episode, we wrapped up the Abraham study with the last years of his life, and then we summarized kind of the whole theme of his life and talked about a couple of things that we just needed to try to remember. And so if you happen to miss that episode, you might want to go back. Something else that we need to take note of is that even though his death is listed before this passage that we're going to read today, he didn't actually die until 15 years from the time that these boys were born. So everything in the Bible is not written in chronological order. They're doing kind of what we did last week. They're wrapping up Abraham's life before they really start talking about Isaac and his children, just for the sake of keeping things organized in our heads, but not because that's the actual order that everything happened. So let's go ahead and get started today by reading in Genesis 25, 19. It says, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. So we're going to stop right there because we already read the story about how Isaac and Rebekah got married, but now we find out that he was 40 years old at this time. And remember that she was the granddaughter of Abraham's brother Nahor. And this Bethuel that they're talking about, that's her dad, Nahor's son. And so we find out that they live in Syria. And it just reminds us that Rebekah is Isaac's second cousin. That's what we can gather from this genealogy. Now, look at verse 21. It says that Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And God granted his plea and Rebecca conceived. So that sounds very wonderful, right? They get married. He's 40 years old. They try to have kids. They can't. And so Isaac prays, and then they get pregnant. That's what it sounds like. But look in verse 
26 at the very last sentence. It says, Isaac was 60 years old when she had their sons. So 20 years. 20 years she was barren and 20 years before she had any children. So we have no idea how long after they realized that she couldn't conceive that Isaac started praying about this. It could have been very, very quickly, or he could have waited a while before he began praying, but I feel fairly certain that he didn't wait 20 years before he started praying. I would tend to think he probably began praying pretty quickly, but let's just suppose it was after 10 years. He didn't start praying about it till 10 years after she couldn't have any children. That still means that there were 10 years of him praying before anything happened at all. So that just makes me think about what do we think whenever we're praying for something and absolutely nothing seems to be happening. I mean, there's just no answer. It's not like he's being told no. It's not like he's being led in any other direction. It's just he prays, Lord, help her get pregnant, and she just doesn't. That is such a hard situation to be in. And it's so tempting to think, you know, does he hear me? Does he see what's going on? Does he care? Is there something that's happening that I just don't see? I mean, in their situation, there isn't anything happening that they don't see. There's just nothing happening. But is it not the right time? Obviously, again, in this situation, it isn't the right time. But how do you know that when you're asking and God isn't saying to you, she's going to get pregnant at some point, but this just isn't the right time? I mean, you're thinking, okay, she's not getting pregnant. Now what? You know, it's just so, so hard whenever we just don't hear an answer at all. It's just complete silence. So I have several verses here that I want us to look at so that when we are in this situation, when we feel like we're praying and God is saying nothing to us and we see no evidence that anything is happening, then these are verses that we can go to that will hopefully comfort us and give us ability to trust God and have a little bit of insight into what might be going on in his mind. So let's go ahead and get started by reading Psalm 94, 9. It says, He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? So obviously this is talking about God because he is the one that created our ears and our eyes. And it says, can he not hear and see if he made eyes and ears for us? Don't you think that he can also hear and see? We're made in his image after all, right? So it's just being sarcastic, letting us know like obviously God can hear us and sees us. So if we're tempted when we're praying to think, does he even hear us? Does he see anything that's going on? We can remember this verse. Yes, he hears us. He sees us. No reason to concern ourselves with that. Okay, so let's look at Job 10, 4, and 5. It says, Do you have eyes of flesh, or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? So this is talking to God and it says, do you have the same kind of eyes as me? Do you see like I see? And the answer again is no, he doesn't. He sees things that we do not. And then the next verse says, are your days like my days and your years like my years? And the answer again is no, his time is completely different. And so even though they wanted a child 20 years before, God said, not time yet. This is not the time. Because he knows things that we do not. 
We saw this with Abraham and Sarah, right? They had to wait 25 years for the promise to be fulfilled through Isaac. And so these verses tell us that God hears, He sees. Not only does He see what's going on with us, but He sees things that we don't see. That's what this verse says. His eyes are not like our eyes. He doesn't just see the things that we see. He sees beyond that and that His timing is different. And so just because we don't see anything happening right now does not mean He doesn't have a plan. Now, another thing that we might be tempted to think whenever we're praying and it seems as though nothing is happening is, okay, if you see it and you hear me, then do you just not care? Maybe that's the case. Maybe God just doesn't care about the thing we're praying about, right? So this is 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, and it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So what does that say? Tell him all the things that you care about, because he cares about you. And since he cares about you, then he cares about the things that you care about. So just humble yourself, and in due time, you will see his answer to your prayer. Now, it may not be the answer that we want, But we always know that God cares about us. And so if nothing is happening at this very moment, something will because God does care about it. It's not like he hears our prayer and he just says, eh, not that big of a deal. Not messing with that. He will answer it at some point. The answer may be no or the answer may be a different way than what we anticipated. But the answer is never going to be, I don't care about that. Listen also to Psalm 2713. It says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So the psalmist here is saying, you know, I would lose hope except for I really believe that I'm going to see your goodness in this life here on this earth. And we do, right? We always see God's goodness on this earth. And so... Even if we feel as though God isn't answering us right now, we don't have to be hopeless because we know that God is good and we know that He's going to show us His goodness. So we just have to wait and have courage and strength and trust in Him. So if nothing's happening right now, it will. Now let's look at Philippians 1.6. This says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So this just reminds us that if God did start something in our lives, if we know that something is from the Lord and then all of a sudden this progress just stops, then we know that he will complete it at some point. It just apparently isn't the right time because if God starts something, he finishes it. That's what this is saying. And so we know in this situation that God started a promise in Abraham that he told Abraham and Isaac would be carried out through him. And that promise was that the whole nation would be blessed through Abraham and Isaac and that they would have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so Isaac has to have children in order for that to happen. God started that work before Isaac was ever even born, and we know that he will carry it to completion. And we don't always have promises like that from the Lord, but we do see things that we know are from him. And so we can rest assured that if he started something that we know is from him, that he will complete it. Listen to Psalm 62, 5 through 8. 
it says, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I will not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. So this tells us to wait for God like the last verse did, but it also tells us that our expectation of an answer can be through Him. We can expect that God is able to fulfill His will here on this earth, and He is able to take care of His children. And so really, truly, only He can do that. We want other people to be able to help us, and sometimes they can, but we can only expect that God will always be the one that's able. He's the one that's our rock. He's the one that saves us. He is the one that defends us. He's the one that preserves us. He's the one that we can run to. All of those things. And so we can always trust Him. We can run to Him. We can tell Him all of our problems. And we can expect that He hears us. He cares about us. And He will answer our prayer at some point, And we just have to wait on Him. Now, again, I do not always believe that he answers our prayers in the way that we want them answered, but that's actually what we want anyway. He's still answering our prayer. He's just doing it in a different way than what we may be asking him to, but that's good because we're not God and he is. So listen to this. This is in Romans 8, beginning in verse 24. It says, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's what they had to do, right? They had to hope for the thing that they don't see. They have to hope for that baby when they see absolutely no evidence that it's ever going to come. Because if they hope for something that they already know, if she's already pregnant, then no reason to hope, right? But if we don't see it, and we put our hope and faith in God that way and eagerly wait for it, knowing and believing that God is going to answer us in some way at some point, then we can persevere. Now listen to this part. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So what this tells us is sometimes we don't know how to pray. We think we're, we're asking for the right thing, but we're not. And so the Spirit takes our prayer And intercedes on our behalf because he not only knows what we want, but he also knows what God wants. It says he makes intercession for the saints, which is us, according to God's will. And then that verse 28, it says he will work those things together for our good whenever we love God and we're called according to his purpose. So what the spirit does is he takes our prayers and he says, you don't exactly know what you're praying for. So I know what God wants. And I know what you want. And we're going to work all of that out in order to do what God wants and still be for your good. 
That's what I'm going to do. So we have to trust that God is doing that. If it says right here that we can hope in Him and we can eagerly wait for our answer with perseverance because we know that the Spirit is going to intercede for us and that God's will is going to be done while also working everything together for our good, then we're okay, right? Last verse on this subject, Romans 5, 3 through 4. It says, Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we know that if we have to wait for things, if things are hard, It says that we can glory in that because, you know, when we have to persevere, then we develop character and that character gives us hope that can't disappoint us because when we hope in God, we'll never be disappointed. So I hope that those are several verses that if you feel any of these ways that I have felt before where it's like, does he see me? Does he hear? Does he care? Is he doing anything? Is there anyone that can help me? All of those types of things that you will be able to look to these verses and remind yourself that yes, He does see, He does care, He is able. You can place all your hope in Him. It's just that it may not be His time or it may not be His way. And so we just have to be patient. We have to trust Him and just keep praying and knowing that He has our best interest at heart along with His will. Okay, so let's go ahead and continue reading in Genesis 25 and find out what happens after Rebekah gets pregnant. This is in verse 22. It says, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So these boys were fighting before they were even born. And Rebekah must have felt horrible because she went to God asking him what in the world was going on. This is the first record of a woman praying to God. It's not her husband on her behalf, but she herself went to him. And God explained that she was going to have two sons. And he gave her even a little more information and said that the older one would serve the younger. So Esau was born first and he was red and hairy all over. His name meant hairy. And Jacob was born immediately after and he was holding on to his brother's heel. And so they called him Jacob, which means supplanter, the one that is trying to get the other person's position. And so from the very beginning, Jacob was fighting for the position of firstborn. It's giving the picture of him grabbing a hold of Esau's heel as if he was trying to pull him back to allow himself to be born first. And then the differences didn't stop there, right? As they grew up, we begin to see that Esau is a skillful hunter and he loves the outdoors. And Jacob seems to be the complete opposite. He's quiet and he likes to be inside. 
And then their parents, they just put further dissension between them, right? Because they were playing favorites. The way they're described is like Esau is a man's man, loving to hunt and be outdoors. And Jacob is this mama's boy hanging around the house, cooking and cleaning, you know. And here's the deal. It's fine for the parents to notice the differences between their sons. But the problem came whenever they decided that one characteristic was better than the other. That's what causes dissension. Whenever you start to say, oh, well, because this son is like this, then I like him better and vice versa. Listen to a few verses about favoritism. The first one is pretty straightforward and very short. This is Romans 2:11. It says, there is no partiality with God. So if God doesn't play favorites, then neither should we, right? This is Deuteronomy 16:19. It says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So God says, be fair. Don't show partiality whenever you're judging something. Don't take bribes. Just be fair. Listen to James 2, 1 through 9. This is in your spiritual life. And it says, My brothers, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor of this world? world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill royal law according to the scripture that you should love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So that's telling us how we're not supposed to show partiality in who we accept into our church and who we tell people about and just judging people by the way that they look or their status or whatever. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 14. It says, For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our presentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part that lacks it, that there should be no chism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are of the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, 
And after that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So this is God explaining to us that there is no one better than the other. All is needed in the body of Christ. All is needed in this world. All is needed in a family, right? We need every position. And so no reason to be fighting for position, right? Every position is important. So why do we fight for roles and honorable positions in our jobs as if that's more important than the thing that we're doing right now? Why do we hold one in more value than the other? When we get caught up in status and position, then we begin to think we're either more important or less important than we really are. And we begin to play favorites and not see the importance of the entire group. Now let's go ahead and move on because we're going to see fairly quickly that Esau, at the least, sees the importance of what he isn't able to do and what his brother is. Okay, so let's go ahead and read on, beginning in verse 29. It says, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom means red. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear it to me. And so he swore it and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So now Esau's happy about this mama's boy being able to cook, right? Now he needs it. If both of them were only able to hunt, then there would be no one to cook. And if they both were only able to cook, they'd always be eating beans because they wouldn't have any meat. So they're both needed. We can see how important that both characteristics are whenever we look at it from this perspective. Now the birthright is given to the oldest son and they get a double portion of the inheritance when their father dies and much of the time other privileges and authority over the family. And so this is what Jacob's been wanting the entire time, right? That's why he was called the supplanter in the beginning because he was trying from the very beginning to take this birthright. Apparently he's been thinking about this his entire life because as soon as Esau says, hey, I need some stew, he's like, all right, you want something from me? I want something from you. Obviously, this is not a fair trade, but Esau was desperate and Jacob was willing to take full advantage of that. And so this just shows another difference between the boys because Jacob was very thoughtful and methodical and completely willing to capitalize on his brother's weaknesses. And Esau was just living in the moment acting without any thought of the consequences or the future. And so he gave his future away just for a passing moment of satisfaction. His response is just drama, right? I mean, it's like, ugh, fine. I mean, no reason for me to hold on to the birthright. If I die, it's going to be of no use to me anyway. I mean, I'm fairly certain that he would have lived. He could have figured out another way. But he just could not think past that very moment of what he needed. And so he sells away the future that he's claiming to ensure this entire time. And this just goes to show you that impulsivity has no regard for any time but the present. He had absolutely no ability to think beyond that very moment. So here we've got lots of people doing a lot of things wrong, right? 
We've got the parents playing favorites. We've got Esau being dramatic and impulsive. And Jacob has coveted something that didn't belong to him this entire time. And he was willing to take something that rightfully belonged to his brother. It's easy in this situation to see why God would place coveting within the Ten Commandments because wanting something turned into taking it. So let's read this 10th commandment that God gave to Moses. Exodus 20, 17. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Do not want things that do not belong to you. That's what God's saying. If it isn't yours, then do not desire it. But... Coveting should not be confused with jealousy for what is rightfully ours. Did you know that even God says that he's jealous? Listen to this. He says it several places. This is the first one in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 14. It says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of its sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So not only does it say that God is jealous, it says his name is jealous. And the reason is because he's telling them, don't make treaties with these other people in this land because they're going to get you to cheat on me. That's basically what he says. They worship other gods. And if you intermarry with them, then you're going to end up worshiping their gods, which is going to make you betray me. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. So God is so jealous that it says he would be angry with us if we betrayed him, if we were unfaithful to him. And he's telling the Israelites he could destroy them if they're going to betray him like that. Listen also to Deuteronomy thirty-two sixteen. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. So he told them, if you do this, then you're going to provoke me to anger. And then they did. They caused God to be angry because they betrayed him. They were unfaithful to him. And so jealousy has a bad rap in our culture nowadays because we think it's wrong to be jealous. But really what it is is just wrong probably for us to be controlling of another person. But it is not wrong for us to be jealous if someone else is trying to take something that rightfully belongs to us. Our worship, our praise, our devotion, our time, our energy, our focus, everything that we have belongs to God. And so he is jealous whenever we give that to someone else, just as if we were an unfaithful spouse. That's what he keeps telling them. So that tells me that if our spouse is unfaithful, then we have a right to be jealous, right? Because their body belongs only to us. Once you marry someone, then that is something that you give to them and them alone. There are rights that a wife has that no other woman has to their husband. 
And there are rights that a husband has that no other man has towards his wife, right? And so we have a right to desire what rightfully belongs to us. We just don't have a right to desire something that doesn't belong to us. And that's what Jacob was doing. Jacob was coveting. He was desiring something that did not belong to him. But on the other hand, Esau, he had a right to be jealous. As a matter of fact, he should have been jealous. He should have been so jealous that Jacob wanted what he had, that he protected it. That's why it says that he despised his birthright, because he wasn't jealous enough to guard it. He didn't love it enough. He wasn't taking good enough care of it. God said, that was rightfully yours, Esau, and you should have guarded it. You should have said, no, that's mine. It belongs to me. It does not belong to you, and you will not get it. You will not get it for any reason. Providing that he didn't love it enough to take care of it, then he hated it. That's why it says he despised it. So we have to be careful of mixing up those two words. There are things that rightfully belong to us and we should guard them. But we also should not desire things that do not belong to us. That is so important to God that he included it in the Ten Commandments. So that's all we have today. Next week, we're going to talk about an incident that happened with Isaac and Rebecca before we move back to the boys, where we'll focus pretty much the rest of this study. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. If you've enjoyed this, please leave me a five-star review and leave comments wherever you're listening. You can also email me. My email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. Thanks and have a good day.